Welcome to Respect Life Radio. This is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And my special guest today is Deacon Dr. Alan Rastrelli, who practices palliative and hospice care. He's a deacon at St. Thomas More, ordained in 2005. And thank you, Deacon, for being here today. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Yeah, well, I guess one of my first questions is, why did you get into medicine? And then how did end-of-life issues become your focus? When I entered uh, medical school, I had all kinds of ideals and everything. And as I uh, finished my four years of medical school, I chose the um, vocation or the area of medicine in anesthesia. So I practiced anesthesiology after a four-year residency Mm -hmm. and had been happily practicing uh, all since 1980. And by the mid-90s, 95 or so, a year or so after the Oregon assisted suicide law was passed, I was in the operating room and I'd been paying attention to what was going on there in Oregon after they passed it. And what I was hearing from them was that um, there was a cry out there to say, uh, I want you to put you me out of my misery because I'm suffering so much. There's so much unrelieved pain here, and I've got this illness, and it's terminal, and I want you, doctor, to put me out of my misery. Or hearing from families that are caregivers and don't want to see their loved one suffer, for them to be saying, I want you to put them out of my misery because it was so hard to watch them suffer. And so I started reflecting on the field of medicine. And if people are calling out for that, and we have an armamentarium, both pharmacy-wise, intervention-wise, and medicine, to be able to take care of the physical or somatic pain that people often experience and are crying out about. So I started looking into, uh, that's a failure on our part from the medicine standpoint. as a By not educating people properly? Not educating and not treating them. You know, there was a hesitancy to adequately treat pain, especially towards the end of life and things like that. So I started thinking, well, I, I want to go and get some extra training in different pain management techniques. But at the other time, I was also discerning coming into the diaconate. Uh, later on, I saw that the Holy Spirit, why he was calling me to the diaconate, as well as transitioning out of anesthesia and beginning to enter into the field of hospice and palliative medicine in the hospital that I was working at, where they wanted to start an inpatient palliative care team. Okay. As I discovered then this whole new field of medicine, I realized that, yes, I can adequately treat the vast majority, 95% of patients' pain syndromes that they have with their illness or more uh, with adequate treatment. But I began to see that even with that treatment, the people were still suffering in many different ways. And as I entered into palliative medicine, there's many ways that people suffer. And what I discovered was that uh, there's multiple areas besides the pain is existential suffering, you know, spiritual suffering, uh, suffering of the soul, so to speak, that cannot be denied, no matter what kind of faith you have, Uh, emotional suffering, financial suffering. So I realized that that's why God was maybe calling me into the diaconate is to be able to, as a physician and a deacon, to be able to address all those facets through palliative care uh, for patients that are having these uh, issues at the end of life. And so I looked on palliative medicine and what God was calling me to as the antidote to the cry for assisted suicide. And I started looking more and more into the dangers of the advancement of this movement of assisted suicide and euthanasia. So you got into this 
really as it was starting to pick up steam, really, huh? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, but, and I'll, I'll probably go into that a little bit later, it's not a new movement. Uh, but mm-hmm. it's starting to sweep across the United States. Right. And In terms of momentum, though, it had... Oh, my gosh. It, it was it, almost it like really a tsunami at that point, start. right? Yes. Well, it's interesting to hear, you know, how you got into it. Um, what has been your experience now that, you know, you've been trained on this, but then you see the other side, you know, just really pushing this, let's just, let's just kill people because that way they won't cost us amount of so much money, it'll be less pain that I have to deal with. Um, how's that been going? I mean, since you've been working in this field, I mean, we just recently here in Colorado passed the euthanasian law. Um, what has that done to people's mindsets and to your work? Is that giving more people coming to you and say, hey, I really want this help, I want this palliative care? Or are you still, are you seeing more and more people saying, hey, I just want to end things? I'm not seeing more people asking to end their life because it's uh, so relatively new here in Colorado. Okay. But I fought for the last three or four years, both in the legislature and then in the campaign to pass the bill here um, against assisted suicide. And when I testified before the legislature, it was enough pause for them to look at the law and how uh, fragmented it is, how flawed it is, as far as protecting the people that it's, it's expecting to serve, so to speak. Right, right. So I, I kind of quoted the Hippocratic Oath that I took when I graduated from medical school, and this is 2,400 years old, and it's from a pagan philosopher and physician who saw in his society the dangers where medicine and doctors were heading down. And I'll quote what we did uh, pledge when we graduated from medical school. The regimen I adopt shall be for the benefit of my patients according to my ability and judgment and not for their hurt or for any wrong. I will give no deadly drug to any though it be asked of me, nor will I counsel such, and especially I will not aid a woman to procure abortion. So you can see for 2,400 years, society and ethics and medicine have been struggling with these issues for a long time, and just as soon as you think that they might be going away, they resurrect their head. Yeah, because it sounds like basically our society has turned that statement on its head. I mean, they've basically reversed everything. And interestingly, yeah. Yeah, after 2,400 years, but I guess we think we're so much smarter today than everybody was, right? Well, it's now not used in medical school graduations anymore. It's oh, not wow. politically correct. Oh, wow. If I didn't you really know that. think about it. Um, And so I started looking also then at the dangers, the slippery slope that we were worried about of uh, when I look at Netherlands and Belgium countries that had started out with assisted suicide in the early 2000s, late 90s and early 90s. And they've gradually evolved into euthanasia where now it's practiced that uh, you can, people are being euthanized without their consent. People are being euthanized with dementia so they can't fully understand what's going on. Doesn't uh, matter children. if you have a directive or anything prior. Okay. Yeah, and and family members don't even have to be notified about it, and suddenly they find that their loved one was euthanized. So it's a tremendously steep, slippery slope that the people that are behind the movement, the uh, uh, Compassion and Choices, the Euthanasian Assisted Suicide Movement, uh, are trying to just get their foot in the door so that eventually we'll have a national 
approval of assisted suicide and from there gradually loosening the restrictions on it and qualifications for assisted suicide uh, so that um, it will eventually go into full euthanasia where the doctor or someone is actually euthanizing that person. Uh, so what they use all kinds of semantics. Um, the movement, the modern movement here in the United States began in the 1800s, late 1800s when morphine and chloroform anesthetics were brought into being and people started making motions towards, hey, if this person's suffering or they're a burden on society, it's their duty to move out of the way so that they aren't uh, suffering anymore and we can just let them have a calm and peaceful death. Um, and then in uh, 19, and that's part of the eugenics movement also in uh, Oregon in 1921, they uh, actually had the Oregon health system uh, brought out the value and importance of eugenics for people that are poor, disabled. Um, well, that was kind of Mar Margaret Sanger's uh, big platform, wasn't there it? There you go. There you go. So they started working on the bookends of life. So I think one of the, one of the things that would be helpful, and maybe you could help us understand, uh, in terms of euthanasia, sometimes people think, um, you know what, I just have to take this pill and I'm going to go to sleep and everything's... I'm just not going to wake up. It's going to be very peaceful. What's the reality of what euthanasia, when somebody's giving that cocktail of drugs, what it does to them and their family, watching something like that happen? Much different than what it's how it's portrayed. You know, death with dignity, physician aid in dying, um, a peaceful death, and that type of thing. I don't know. There's a movie called Soylent Green. It came out way back, and there was a a place where you would go and have a euphoric end-of-life uh, euthanasia and everything, so they get rid of some of the population. In reality, what the prescription is, is um, a, when the doctor, after two doctors say that this person has six months or less to live and they're requesting uh, assistance with their suicide, uh, after they make sure that, uh, which they do inadequately, unfortunately, uh, that they aren't psychiatrically impaired and making an informed consent, they know what they're doing, they'll write a prescription for a medicine called cecobarbital. So that's a barbiturate. When I first started in anesthesia many years ago, uh, there was a relative of that medicine, a newer one that we use, thiopenethol. A lot of people understood that. Now we know propofol is the medicine we use to induce anesthesia. But cecobarbital is a barbiturate, a sedative that uh, is given out in about 100 capsules. And it's a powder. And in order for the person to ingest this medicine, they write the prescription there to break open the capsules, uh, pour the powder into a slurry of some sort, of something that they can drink it down with and ingest it. Before they do that, they premedicate them with a medicine called Ativan or Versed or something like that, uh, like a Valium. Yeah, many people have heard of those, yeah. Right, right. And they, you know, it's kind of like an anxiety medicine. They give you an anti-nausea medicine and then you're expected uh, within a certain amount of time to ingest this medicine on your own. So you have to hold it and drink it. Well, when you see some of the reports of people that are pro-assisted suicide but realize the caustic taste of this mixture, some people can't even complete and drink it all down uh, because it's so distasteful. Yeah, sounds like it. But if you think about it, this is a medicine that I took eight years to train for to be able to administer a similar medicine to put a person to sleep for their surgery and then keep them asleep. Because when I do that, I have to protect their airway, 
because they start to stop breathing. Um, they can lose their airway. They can regurgitate and have vomitus come up and go into their lungs. Um, and I have to be ready to protect that airway, even though I'm giving it intravenously and it works very quickly, this, it can still happen that they don't immediately go to sleep or whatever. And these are people, no training. No training. Given a prescription and said, hey, good luck. Right. So they think that there's all these safeguards built in and there's no abuse that's happening. But after those doctors write, the, the doctor writes the prescription for it and the patient picks it up or Uber driver, in some cases, dri- right. delivers it to the house, they can take it anytime they want. There's no requirement for a healthcare professional to be there. So when you look at Oregon statistics, only 10, 10% are attended by a physician and another 10% by maybe another healthcare professional. So we don't know when they're going to take it uh, and what goes on behind closed doors because there's no requirement for reporting unless a healthcare professional is there. So we only have statistics on 20 to 30 percent. And some of those do include a person not going to sleep all the way and dying from their natural causes months later or uh, throwing up or who knows what happens in 70 to 80 percent of the cases. But it's anything but peaceful. And it can be anything but peaceful. Yeah, I mean, and for family members, if they're there watching it, there was an article that came out in the uh, Denver Post, I don't know, it was about six, nine months ago, of a family, I think it was a woman, talking about watching her husband taking eight eight to ten hours before he ended up dying. He was in total misery. I mean, it was. I mean, she was traumatized by the fact of having to watch him take this cocktail and the length of time and the discomfort and just, it was anything but palliative, that's for sure. absolutely. And, you know, the thing is, is that that's a huge flaw, but what the compassion and choices people want you to think then is, well, we need to come up with a better prescription, something that's easier. Oh, well, let's get a physician to do it instead because it can be peaceful. I mean, if you think about it, an anesthesiologist would be the perfect euthanasia uh, administrator because I can make people feel very good as they're drifting off to sleep and then simply not breathe for them. Yeah. And And so you're you're listening to Respect Life Radio. We have Deacon Dr. Alan Restrelli, who practices palliative care and hospice care. Uh, We're talking about end-of-life issues because when we're talking about life, we want to make sure that people are aware from conception through natural death that we have to give that dignity of life that Christ gives us and that we need to cherish life, not try to end it. And, you know, just hearing about what people go through, you know, how roughshod the law really is with holes and gaps, and now the, the excuse is let's, let's try to make it a little more peaceful. Do you have any examples or stories of somebody who may have been contemplating, not seriously, but at least it was in their mind, ending their life, but then they realize that there is palliative care, and they realize that the spiritual component that you would bring to somebody like that, and just making their life more peaceful as opposed to, uh, you know, just wanting to end it all and 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 leaving this world in a in a way that uh, is less than dignified. Absolutely, the whole push for people requesting assisted suicide in Oregon and other states that have passed it um, 
only about 25% are asking it because of unrelieved pain. And to me, that's a failure of people treating them. The majority, 80, 90% of them, are due to the feeling of a loss of the ability to live my life like I used to, the ability to um, feel dignified, to, to feel that they're a burden to their family or themselves or the caregivers and everything. And palliative care and hospice can address all those issues very adequately. And so that's why I call it the antidote so that when we can't cure a disease and we can't even stop the progression of it, that's when we go into what I call intensive caring. And that's my, my motto is what we can bring them to the bedside. So we can get into what is part of your existential suffering. I can give you medications and other techniques to be able to help relieve the symptoms of constipation or nausea or pain or seizures or anything else like that. We have medicines to be able to, to treat that. But even after we treat that, when I see that there's still some suffering or angst, I look uh, into the existential part of their suffering. And that's a huge component because as we talked earlier, the struggle with the faith uh, some people say, I don't need God, I don't need prayer, I don't need religion, I don't need this or that. As they get closer to the actual end of their life, um, they start to get that fear in their eyes to say, well, what if I'm wrong? What if Pascal's wager that there is an afterlife and there is a heaven or hell, um, what if I've blown it? And so what I try to do is bring into the bedside um, the idea that you can be the five o'clock servant. You can be saved even though you may have you know, discounted God and prayer and everything else. Never too late until it's too late. And our Catholic faith has the most wonderful tools for it. And so what I try to do is flip it on, rather than saying this is the end, this is death, or they're passing away, that type of thing, I say you've been in the pregnancy of life, and you're entering into the, your birthing process. You're entering into a new birth into eternity then I can help you with the labor pains of that birth. And so how can I help you with your suffering? And so I, I parallel it with um, the suffering of Jesus Christ and his road to Calvary. And I also make sure they understand, because there's a misconception about the Catholic faith and how we deal with end of life and everything, that you got to, you know, get a a, a flagellum and, I mean, you know, yeah, just yeah, a, yeah, yeah. A beat your, your back and, you know, yeah. until you hurt really bad. If you look at Christ in the agony in the garden, he was kneeling down and asking God, his father, uh, can I be relieved of this cup? So he wasn't like, I'm so looking forward to this, Father. Can we just get this done now? You know, right. and I, I want some extra lashes, you know, because I really look forward to all the suffering that I want. No, he was asking if it could be relieved. But when he couldn't, I mean, and physiologically he was sweating water and blood as they describe it, you know, on the ground. So he has as much, you know, anxiety about it or anticipation of it as we all do because he's fully human. But where, where did he get his comfort? He knew that if he was submitting himself to God's will, that God would be there with him to help endure that suffering. And that's what we're asked to do, to put help people. that Suffering is a part of life, not a part from life. You know, and but we all think that, hey, as soon as we get suffering, there's something wrong here and we need to get rid of it. Either get rid of the sufferer by killing them or, um, you know, uh, 
there's, you know, suing somebody because mm-hmm. they didn't adequately get care, care of the suffering. Something's wrong here because medicine should be able to get me out of this. So uh, what we found is that uh, the labor epidural, like I used to put a lot of labor epidurals in for mothers that are delivering, uh, we can ease that suffering. But no one's going to escape this world without some sort of suffering, whether it's pain and somatic type of suffering or existential, emotional, financial suffering. And that's what palliative medicine and hospice medicine, they're distinguished, but they, that's what their goal is, is to be able to spend time at the bedside with the patients. So it probably not only helps the patients, but my guess is the family that's gathered around and trying to help this individual are comforted just as just as much as the patient probably, or sometimes maybe even more depending on the situation Huge. because that's, of what you're explaining and then they get it. Oh my gosh. Once you nor- not normalize, but you explain what I do with patients and families is explain what's going on with their body so they can better understand, well, how come my body's still dying? Well, how come I'm still suffering from this or this? How come there's not more that they can do? Once you get all the family and loved ones together and the patient and help them understand what's going on, there's a tremendous relief so that everybody hears what's happening and they can understand and journey with that patient and the caregivers from palliative and hospice care can be there with them to help explain what's going on and anticipate and and then adjust whatever is needed for their care as they start to transition into different stages of the end of their life so they can be there at all times. That's yeah. not even with prayer. Yeah. That, that, and so, I, I mean, this time is going fly, is flying by, but one of the things I want to let people know, if somebody has a loved one or maybe they themselves are struggling with an end-of-life issue, how do they reach out to you? How do they get this help and this explanation about, how I can be comforted in palliative care, how the spiritual piece is important. I mean, you have your own uh, business, right? I mean, you this is part of your work, and you mentioned the name of it uh, before we got started, but if you could talk about how could people reach out to you, Deacon, to get this information, and then if it is an end-of-life thing, how can they receive this care you're talking about? Well, the, uh, I, I have my phone numbers uh, available on, uh, you know, in the archdiocese and other agencies. I do work with a, a contract with part-time work with uh, Centura Hospice, which is Porter and St. Anthony. And I work with other hospices and other um, palliative care teams and things like that. Uh, and it's called St. Francis of Assisi Supportive Care, okay. LLC. Uh, now... Um, so I, I can give advice, I can help people with, you know, advanced directives, power of attorneys, those are all very important things to help pre-plan when we see that our bodies are starting to get into a difficult situation. And then I can journey with them, even if I'm not directly involved as a physician with them, uh, to help coordinate some of their care and to make sure that they can live and have their new birth according to the Catholic Church's teachings so that it helps relieve a lot of confusion and frustration for people when they know that they're honoring, you know, the end of life as the church has taught, and that is not to abort, not another, uh, you know, the culture of death is aborting life at the beginning and also at the end now with euthanasia and assisted suicide. Um, I can help in those areas, and certainly 
I've been able to attend some amazing moments. I mean, it's been a privilege to be able to be in such a sacred space with patients and their families towards the end of life. To be able to pray a Divine Mercy Chaplet at the bedside, and there was one patient in the intensive care unit where we and the family uh, knelt at the bedside, prayed it during the three o'clock hour, and the patient passed away wow. during that hour. And that was tremendous relief. We know it's relief for the patient because Jesus is standing there, you know, with his infinite mercy to welcome them in. And that's so comforting for the patient and their families to be able to know that, to have that truth and trust that mm -hmm. the eternal physician was there welcoming in, him into his arms. I mean, just <laughs> the contrast between taking a lethal cocktail, as you described earlier, and then the story you just described now, it's like night and day. What is dignity? Why, why would anyone choose the former over the latter with Christ and the comfort and the family around them? Uh, you know, the, the media, the entertainment industry, they all promote this heinous way of ending life when there's such a peaceful, loving way to leave this world. It's, it's almost mind-boggling that people would choose the one, but I think it's a lot of its information. They just don't know. You're right. You're, you're absolutely right. They have the control of the media. They have compassion and choices is relentless in trying time and time again to get it passed in the states, and we've been fighting it nationally with Catholic Medical Association and other doctors because it's, it's an abrogation of the physician-patient relationship as well as an abrogation of life, uh, of trying to intervene like this and have that control that St. John Paul II talked about in his um, Evangelium Vitae. So um, people need to be aware, and we're creating an effort with the Respect Life Office right now to be able to, uh, I've been talking on it for 10 years or more at different parishes and organizations, but we're trying to bring out a more formal program to be able to educate on what are some of the end-of-life issues, why is it important to be educated on this, and what can you do to uh, av avoid that? Or when a person does ask for that, um, can you, where do you, how do you relieve them of that um, feeling of abandonment, feeling of hopelessness and despair, and be able to bring them to a very, very peaceful death? Well, it's been great to have you. I mean, I can't believe that 30 minutes went by this quickly, uh, so we'll probably have to have you back. But thank you, Deacon, Alan Deacon Dr. Alan Rastrelli, and all the work you've done with palliative care and hospice care, and just really informing people today about the truth, because unfortunately people haven't gotten it. So thank you very much for coming, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you very much right. for having me. It's a passion. All right. God bless. God bless.